Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Today is the seventh Sunday since we gathered last to celebrate the beginning of Epiphany. Seven Sundays since the arrival of the foreign magi to the bedside of the newborn Christ. Seven Sundays since we remembered that Jesus was going to be some sort of spiritual magnetic force in the world that would draw all peoples to himself. And with each passing week since Epiphany, the light of the truth about who Jesus is has shone a bit brighter. It's been seven Sundays since Epiphany, and today is our penultimate celebration in this season. Next week, Paul will be preaching on the transfiguration of Christ, and after that, we're off to the races, the winding, narrow path of another Lenten journey to the cross. But today, we are still in Epiphany. We are still considering what it means to follow Jesus, to follow the one who once claimed to be himself the road, the truth, and the life in bodily form. Today we've arrived to the dining room table of the liturgy to once again find it filled with our usual four-course feast, Old Testament, Psalm, New Testament and gospel readings all neatly presented on platters hot from the oven, ready for you to pass them around and share in their goodness. It's okay if you're a little picky, like some of the eaters at my dining room table at home when Katie and I veer off the range for an unusual dish. Maybe you don't care much for the chicken, leek, and rice soup-ish high theology of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Maybe you prefer the peanut butter and jelly-ish straightforward ethics of Jesus in the gospel reading. Or maybe you love the fresh-cut fruit of the Old Testament stories, the story of Joseph especially. But here we are at this family table gathered to feast upon the revelations of God we find in the readings from the Bible. The scriptures are to the church what food is to the body. They nourish us. They help us define our cravings. They bring us warmth and joy, but also spice and heat. Welcome to our table today. 
And no matter who you are or what your scriptural preference is, I'll tell you the same thing we tell our kids at every meal. There's only one rule here. You don't have to like it, but you do have to try it. I tell you this today because I'm deviating a bit from my usual pattern of preaching from the gospel passage, and I've elected to preach a bit from today's selection from 1 Corinthians 15 in a sermon I've titled, I Believe in the Resurrection of the body, words that I have stolen from the ending of the Apostles' Creed, words that some of you have been saying in worship for the past 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years or more. I believe in the resurrection of the body. In our New Testament reading today, which you can find in your order of worship, or if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We listen in to the Apostle Paul as he's writing to a small group of Christians living in a rather cosmopolitan Greek trade city called Corinth. Some of those Christians there came out of Jewish backgrounds and had Jewish practices infused in their bodies and their prayers. Others came out of pagan backgrounds and they were still offering food to stone idols. Some folks in that church were immensely wealthy with vast plots of land and titles, and others in that same church down the pew were unbelievably poor, of the working class, exhausted by 14, 16-hour shifts at the docks. The church in Corinth was a mixed bag of experiences and understandings of the world and assumptions about how things worked or didn't work, and It's always been like that in the church, it seems. We're always a mixed bag of experiences and assumptions. The New Testament recognizes two pieces of mail that the Apostle Paul sent to the church in Corinth, and we affectionately call them by their very memorable names, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We don't know if the people in Corinth wrote Paul back, We assume they did, but we don't have those letters. All we have is one-way communication. And we, here, 2,000 years later, are essentially opening somebody else's mail to poke around in it and try to figure out what's going on. We're in 1 Corinthians 15 today, near the end of Paul's first letter. And this entire chapter... From the beginning to the end is devoted to Paul's understanding and convictions about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us today. 58 verses about resurrection. 58 verses that together make the case that Christian faith must be a resurrection faith. A faith that understands that what began with Jesus being raised from the dead has unimaginable consequences for the rest of us in God's plans for this world. New Testament scholar Carla Weeks reminds us that for a majority of those living in the Roman Empire, life was brutal and hard. Food was scarce, and the lack of nutrition caused many conditions such as poor eyesight, atrophied muscles, and weak bones. Life expectancy was low, she writes, and less than 50% of children would live to see their 10th birthday. Death was part 
of life in a very visceral and tangible way. And the church in Corinth would not have been exempted from this. And so Paul's decision to spend an entire chapter reminding them of the hopeful consequences of Jesus' resurrection and the hope that we would experience life in bodies that do not ache or groan or waste away tells us that the church there was curious about such matters. What will such a life be like? They might have begun to wonder. When will it take place? How will it occur? How can we know that it will happen that way? In 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wades into the waters of resurrection and attempts to undergird the life of this church with a fresh infusion of hope. A hope that God in Christ has met death in battle and has emerged victorious. And through him we are assured the promise of life everlasting. Legend has it that Ernest Hemingway was much once challenged in a bar, because of course he was, to produce a story using only six words. Produce a story. Six words. And in response, he allegedly wrote the following short story. Here it is. Are you ready? Six words. Hold on just a sec. Josh, can you put that first one up there? Here it is. For sale. Baby shoes. Never worn. Wow. It's a story of sadness and ache, maybe? Of moving on, of letting go, giving up, hope? It flows, this flows out of a mere trickle of words. A magazine called Smith Magazine has created an ongoing challenge for people to contribute stories on various topics. And like Hemingway's apocryphal story, they are all restricted to using six words. They call it the six-word memoir project, and they feature the contributions of renowned and amateur authors. They've published a half dozen books of the contributions over the past uh, decade or so, and more keep flooding in. Some of my favorite contributions include these. Changing the bed sheets is my cardio. Next one. Zoomed my classes, missed so much. Next one. I still make coffee for two. Next one. The slot machine, my reverse ATM. <laughs> Next one. My family is overflowing with therapists. Gosh, I'd love that one. Next one. Yes, I still have Superman sheets. Six words. Could you tell a powerful story using only six words? Could you somehow capture hope and love and pain and curiosity and mystery and awe and wonder using only six words? Could that story evoke a sense of trust and confidence and joy simply by repeating it out loud. 
Each week the Christian church gathers for worship, we gather to do something rather basic. We huddle around the dining room table of the liturgy to make a dramatic family announcement to anybody who shows up here. Here in our singing and our praying and our listening and in our baptizing and our feasting and our blessing, we announce a six-word story of our own every single week. Here it is. Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the church's contribution to Smith Magazine's six-word memoirs. This would be our formal submission. Jesus was raised from the dead. Nothing else is as crucial as this essential truth. It is what the entirety of our faith is built upon. Forget for a moment the liturgies and the disagreements over what actually happens at the Lord's table or what specific words you need to say to properly baptize someone. Forget the disputes about music styles and whether a pipe organ or a praise band is preferred. Forget the knockdown, drag-out fights Christians get into over whatever dominant issue is racking up likes on conservative or liberal Twitter accounts. Answers to these things are not the foundation upon which the Christian church has been established. The foundation of Christianity, the essential confession that rests at the very heart of our faith and which fuels every aspect of our service and mission is this. Jesus was raised from the dead. Church, if Jesus had stayed dead, then he was merely a great ethical teacher with optional but perhaps in, uh, but perhaps important commands about loving our neighbor and not judging each other and doing to others as they would have, would have them do unto us. If Jesus had stayed dead, then he was just another religious martyr who died at the hands of a corrupt, intolerant, and violent government. If Jesus had stayed dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus had stayed dead, then we are liars. And we speak untruthfully about God because we claim God raised him to life. If Jesus stayed dead, our faith is pointless. We're still dead in our sins, and we really, really, really ought to find something better to do with our time on Sunday mornings. If Jesus had stayed dead, Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. But our faith says no. This is actually true. It actually happened. Jesus, who died, was raised from the dead. Somehow, in ways that we cannot fully explain, into the chaos of the grave, into the quiet haunt of death, God's Spirit descended and brought forth life. The stone was rolled away. And Christ came forth not dead, not a zombie, but alive in a body, and he was seen by many, Paul said. A couple years ago, uh, my uh, brother and sister-in-law and my wife and I had built a small garden out in my in-law's house, and it's just, it's not very large, it's a few raised bed gardens in a walled-in, uh, sort of fenced-in area to keep the deer and rabbits out, and we plant a smattering of vegetables. One of the things that uh, Jeff and Amanda plant and Katie and I plant are tomato plants, right? You've all planted tomato plants before. 
Uh, we try to get them in the ground, right, around Memorial Day, give or take, or, or depending on how, how, how on it we are, okay? Uh, and, you know, we put it in the ground. We put the tomato cage around it. We make sure the soil is right. We water it, and we wait. If you plant around Memorial Day, you can reasonably expect to see a tomato, you know, end of July, early August-ish, right? Okay. I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying not to look at the master gardeners here because they're probably all just like, what are you talking about? So I want you to imagine for a moment that you've planted this tomato plant in Memorial Day. You're reasonably expecting that this heirloom tomato plant is going to produce beautiful heirloom tomatoes by early August. But it's May. So what do you do? Well, you weed, you water. And usually you just kind of do that. There's not much else to do for the first couple months. But I want you to imagine that what if in this particular circumstance, what if it's June 1st? You've just planted this tomato plant the week before. And you go out, and on June 1st, suddenly, in that plant that you were hoping to have tomato, all of a sudden, it's grown, and there's one giant, ripe, red tomato on it already. What would you be thinking? Well, you might be thinking many things. You might say, what is happening? <laughs> How could this take place? Call the news media. We, we can sell something's in the soil. We could make a ton of money. No, no, no. You might just be really surprised by this. You might start asking some follow-up questions. Is this going to happen again? Will every tomato that is grown on this plant look like this one? Why is it happening now? What does that mean? Suddenly, your priority in your garden would shift. Now, every day, you'd be going in to look at that plant to make sure, are there anything else happening? To make sure that you're doing extra weeding. Maybe the right, you're being really judicious with your watering. You are now focused on this because something has changed in your garden. And so it is, I think, with the resurrection of Jesus. This abundant harvest, the people in, in the early uh, um, first century Jewish thought had a general belief that one day people would be raised from the dead. It would just happen a long way away when God wraps up time. There would be something like a resurrection, but it's kind of background material. It's coming in August. But all of a sudden, two women wander out to an empty tomb three days after something was planted, and there is something new. And it's changed everything. Now everything is about, is focused. What is that going to do for everything else in the garden? The abundant harvest that we'd expected to come way down the road has now shown up in this one perfect ripe tomato. It would be understandable that you might start to wonder why it happened, how it happened, and what does this mean for everybody else? Today, church, we return to the heart of Christian faith. A six-word phrase, a six-word story, six words that have changed everything. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, if Jesus experienced life again in his body after death, then we too will experience life 
in our bodies after our death. We here know what it's like to have bodies that ache, let the church say. Some of you know what it feels like to move more slowly than you did last month, last year. You are accustomed to things not working the way they're supposed to in your bodies. Saint Augustine, I read this quote to Katie this week. Saint Augustine once said that uh, when a person turns 30, they've hit their prime. I said that day's come and gone. So, well, I, you know, um, well, thank you. Paul says, welcome. You know, you know the feeling of having a body that doesn't work right. And maybe you remember when it did work right, and that makes the pain all the more excruciating. You know what it feels like to be dealing with a diagnosis of a disease or a condition that you just can't get ahead of. It's just always there. And if that's you or if that's someone you know, you are well acquainted with the right experience to appreciate this good news. That this is not the end. And that your pain we have in our bodies, the pain that we experience now is not the final chapter in this story. That God's work, God's purpose is to breathe new life, to resurrect, to renew. This truth lurks behind every sermon we preach here. It goes behind every song we sing and every anthem that the choir sings. It hides behind every scripture passage we read. It whispers to us every time we baptize somebody. It announces itself every time we gather at the table. Church, do you know what we call funerals? We call them services of witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a mouthful, but it's a good one. Each time we gather for worship to celebrate the life of someone who has died, we print that on the order of worship, a service of witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we believe that even when we gather at the graveside, even as we peer into the lifeless face of our loved one, even when we sense death's presence and the warm tears of grief are streaming down our faces, we can announce that six-word story, Jesus was raised from the dead. Church is built upon the foundation of Christ and his resurrection. We depend on this truth. We yearn for this truth. We need to hear this truth every time we come to church because if Christ has been raised from the dead, if Jesus didn't stay dead, if God raised him to new life, then everything about him was affirmed to be true. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then we can believe Jesus when he says that anyone who follows after him will share in life after death. We can trust that though we may die, we will yet live. And if we can believe these things, then our entire life changes. 
When we see that God's priority and purpose for this world in Jesus is to restore life, to raise the dead, to imbue the physical world with a permanent state of spirit-filled power, then we have no choice but to become people who reorganize our time and our priorities and our lives so that everything we say and do and everywhere we go bears witness to the loving purposes of God. The message of our six-word story causes us to behave differently, to talk hopefully, to live peaceably, to reach out repeatedly, to turn the other cheek amiably, to listen compassionately, to preach boldly, to forgive perpetually. Our faith in Christ puts us on a road that leads to a different world with different rules and different assumptions about what is normal and what is normative because we now know that the story of a world that is established on greed and addiction and ambition and power and racism and classism and sexism and violence can not outlast the story of God's resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ has been raised, everything must change. And so we return to the words of Jesus in today's gospel reading, and we're reminded that those who profess Christian faith must walk through this world differently than others, for our eyes are fixed on the really real world God is building through Christ and his resurrection. Church, I tell you the story that should come as no surprise. It's only six words long. Jesus was raised from the dead. I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say,